Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. As you said, Mom, our guest today is Beverly Cobain, and our topic is facing grief and loss after suicide. Beverly Cobain is a survivor of three family suicides, including the 1994 death of her cousin, Kurt Cobain, the lead singer of the band Nirvana. She is a psychiatric mental health nurse and the author of Dying to be Free, A Healing Guide for Families After Suicide. Welcome to the show, Beverly. Hi, thank you very much. It's great to have you on the show today, Beverly. And, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about Kurt because I think it's an important thing because I know that was a big issue for a lot of people uh, when he took his own life. It really was, yes. And uh, as you said, it reverberated around the world. Um, I would like you, you start out your wonderful book, Dying to be Free, a healing guide for families after suicide, about Kurt's death. And I wondered if you could read uh, that first chapter for us. Of course. Do you want me to start now? Yep, go ahead. All right. The telephone jars me awake the morning of April 8th, 1994. I croak a hello into the phone. At first, I don't recognize the voice that greets me, a quiet male voice with an edge of excitement. Is this Bev Cobain? He asks and identifies himself as a local newspaper reporter with whom I have spoken on previous occasions. I am distracted by the sun shining in my eyes, and I want to go back to sleep. The reporter's next words change that. Bev, they just found a body dead of a shotgun shotgun blast in Kurt's house, but they're not sure who it is. He is speaking about my cousin, Kurt Cobain, front man for the rock band Nirvana. I am stunned into silence, but suddenly awake. My mind searches for meaning in his words. Someone has discovered a body. Someone is dead in Kurt's house in Seattle. They don't know who it is. Then I remember something important. It can't be He's in treatment in California. The reporter adds a detail new to me. Kurt abandoned the treatment center a few days ago, Bev. They think it's Kurt. There is silence on the line. I can't breathe. Maybe it isn't Kurt. Who could it be? My mind is buzzing with confusion. My eyes hurt. I don't get it. How can they not know whether it's Kurt? Everyone knows what Kurt looks like. I feel my heart jumping and thudding against my chest. My brain is trying to tell me something that my mind does not want to know. The message suddenly gets through, and the shock of it brings me out of bed and drops me to my knees. They don't know whose body it is because there is no face. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Now I know it is Kurt, and I know he has killed himself. He has done the very thing I tried to warn his grandfather about. He is 27, the same age as my son, Michael. Young, talented, beautiful, funny, sweet, smart, gone. Sobbing, I hang up the phone. I am devastated. I am afraid for his wife and child, his parents, siblings, relatives, and his friends. I am terrified for his fans. The possibility of copycat suicides is very real among the millions of kids and young adults who adore Kurt, look up to him, try to imitate him, and believe they are kindred spirits. Wow. 
That is so powerful. And when yeah. I read that, I was taken so far back in, into, you know, the grief and loss and then uh, losing somebody for those, for those young people and for you and the family. I w- uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I have chills. You had chills as you heard it because you really brought us into what you were going through. Uh, I have chills myself now. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Very yeah. powerful. It's very, it's very devastating. Mm-hmm. Now, now, what you were a psychiatric mental health nurse at the time? Yes, I was. And so you realized uh, some of the risks and uh, tried to intervene. And you also talked uh, in book, uh, your first chapter of this book, "Dying to Be Free," about the uh, shirt Kurt wore at at his uh, concerts. Could you talk yes. about that? Yes, he. I was just totally shocked when he wore this white T-shirt, and he had written in, it looked like ballpoint pen ink, on the shirt, I hate myself and I want to die. Mm. And I thought, how much more clear can you get that this man needs help? Yeah, mm-hmm. And you had had two other suicides in your family, right? Yes, yes. Two of my uncles had killed themselves years before. Mm-hmm. Now, did they do that with uh, guns also? Or? Yes, they did. They, one of them used two guns, as a matter of fact, simultaneously. Wow. Because one of the things we know, and, and reading your book and looking at it, because it is about suicide prevention also, is that um, males tend to be more successful with suicide, but women try it more, right? That's, that seems to be true, yeah, from, from what they can tell. Um, and the reason that men probably die more often than women is that they use more lethal means. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, and this just, this just kind of shows us that it's not about how well you're doing in your life. I mean, Kurt was known by everybody. He was extremely successful, very popular, and loved by millions. Yes, he was. He and was he very, still took he, his life. He was making a lot of money. He had a wife, a child. It looked like he had every reason to stay alive, you know, to mm-hmm. be alive and, and um, to live a wonderful life. And mm-hmm. so that was a big question when he died. You know, it's why would somebody with that much want to die? But it's not about what you have or don't have. It's about the pain that you're in. Exactly, Beverly, and I think that's so important for people out there to know. It is. He, he suffered with an immense, enormous amount of pain and depression, and that's what it was about. Exactly, and using, you know, of course he did what a lot of people do. He used drugs and um, alcohol to, um, to, you know, anesthetize himself, and that, of course, just makes things worse. Mm-hmm. So instead of getting the, the help that he needed, he chose to medicate himself. And, and, and he did go into treatment, so he did get the help, but he left. And, you know, I think for the families out there who've had suicide, it's so heartbreaking because they've tried They've tried they, to help them. They've, they've done, you know, most families have done everything possible to help mm-hmm. the person who is suicidal. They've done everything they can. And yet, when the person does die by suicide, they feel so guilty. They feel as if they should have done something more or they shouldn't have done something they did. And it's not about them. It really, it really isn't. It's about the pain that the person was in and how he could not talk about it. Most most families, when they lose somebody to suicide, they really have no idea. I mean, they don't believe that the person is really going to kill themselves. Mm-hmm. They just don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, also I, I should say that people who are depressed and who look depressed and walk around dragging themselves around, most of those people 
do not kill themselves. Many people can live long, depressed lives. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, so you can't really tell who's going to die by suicide. And sometimes they even uh, look better before, right, because they have a plan. Yes, and some people look good all through it. Nobody has a clue that they're, in, that they're having psychological pain that's just killing them inside. But mm-hmm. outside, they make themselves look happy. They get good grades. They are the, um, the football hero. The, you, you know, you just, you just can't tell by looking at the outside of them. And and like Kurt, he went on stage and, you know, was all energetic. And, oh, and yes. Had, who yeah. would know? Uh, what about uh, you? Had a, you have a son his age? Um, how did he take it? And uh, you know, well, you know, it, I don't think that um, that Kurt's death bothered him as much as it did some of his real fans. My son was actually not a fan of Kurt's music, mm-hmm. but but there were millions of kids, of course, around the globe who were. Um, I think my son was more impacted by the death of one of our friends, one of his school age friends. Mm-hmm. Um, who died years ago, of course. Um, mm-hmm. And what course. about his fans? I know uh, they've tried to get in touch with you and all sorts of things. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Talk about that a little bit. What advice do you have for, for people well, who have lost first, somebody like that? The, well, the first book I wrote is, um, it, it is for teens, because, and that's exact, Kurt's death was exactly why. Because I just figured that the kids who were, you know, totally adored him and his music and his band would just be devastated by this. And some of them probably, the, one of the reasons that they were such fans is because Kurt spoke to them. So that meant to me that they were feeling some of the pain that Kurt was feeling in their lives. And they just related to him. So the first book I wrote um, was really for teens and to help them survive feeling depressed or down and to help them know if they were depressed and if they needed some kind of help. Yeah, and you said you were worried about copycat suicides. And yes. Le- and let's yes. let's talk about that, uh, what advice you have uh, when we come back from break and also what advice you have for families out there because you've got some wonderful advice in your book, Dying to be Free, uh, he- the healing guide for families after suicide, which can be very helpful to our listeners.
Well, uh, Beverly, what powerful music uh, Kurt Cobain has and, and what a lot of energy he brought into his music. Was he always exactly. musical? Um, you know, he was. He was. His aunt, another aunt, taught him to play the guitar when he was quite young. So he was always creative in many ways. And did he perform for the family when he was younger? Um, you know, I wasn't around him when he was younger. Uh-huh. I, I, was, I lived in other countries. Oh, so oh. I wasn't around him much when he yeah. was young. Were you surprised when he became so famous? I was surprised. I was surprised and sent him telegrams telling him, okay, right on. <laughs> you know, good, good work. That's great. Well, you said that you had two other family uh, members who had died by suicide, two uncles. And I wanted to ask you, were you concerned about other family members being at risk after Kurt shot himself? I was concerned, not so much about other family members as I was, really, um, because I didn't know as much about suicide then as I do now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Kurt was, the, his death really inspired me to, to learn more about it and that sort of thing. So um, I was more concerned for the kids, uh, mm-hmm. the kids in the world who looked up to him and loved his music. And I'm still finding those people. I mean, they're adults now. And I, I'm I'm still talking to them. Mm-hmm. And and how do they get in touch with you? You've got a website, right? And you're I have writing. a website. And just when I'm out, I travel and speak um, about suicide prevention. And just when I'm out and about, or if I'm at the store, because I'm living back in Washington now, so I go to the store and sign my name to something, you know, my my receipts, and somebody will say Cobain, Cobain. Any relation to Kurt? So mm-hmm. the name is really well known in Washington. So. And is that Washington State or D.C.? It's Washington State. Great. Yeah. And uh, tell people how to find your website. Okay, it's livingmatters.com. Livingmatters.com. Mm-hmm. Livingmatters.com, right. And there's a way to get in touch with me there if you would like to do that. I often get people who go there and just email me to ask me some questions or tell me what they're, they're worried about at this point. Um, and that's fine. Now, uh, your book, Stein to be Free, A Healing Guide for Families After Suicide, is co-author with Jean Larch. Got w- lots of wonderful advice in it. I'm sure it's on Amazon. It is, and it's on my website. And yeah. it's on, on her website. That's great. Well, now, I want to talk a little bit about your advice for other loved ones who have uh, had someone die of suicide. What do you think uh, helped you heal the most? Well, I, I think what helps the most when you've lost somebody to suicide is Get, is having support. It, it is so important to have support and to have. And I think if people would, um, if if people would look for uh, survivors of suicide um, um, meeting group, they're all, they're all over the United States now and probably in other parts of the world too. But they're called SOS groups, survivors of suicide. And they, when you go to one of those, you know that the people, you can say anything you want to, and the people around you understand where you're coming from, whereas um, it's different. The suicide grief is different because if, if somebody dies in a car wreck, let's say a kid dies in a car wreck, and all, everybody that's a friend or a neighbor or relative comes around and they'll stay around as long as they're needed because they know what grief the family is going through. But in a suicide death, it's different because people will come around a little while, but a lot of people who would have come to another type of, of grief will not come to this one because they're afraid to say anything that might bring up memories. They're, they don't want to listen to how sad they are because it makes them sad. They don't know the right things to say. 
Um, people are afraid of the topic of suicide, I think. Yes, of course, even after mm-hmm. there's been one. Well, yeah. t- well, talk about the fact that you can talk about it with family members. If you've had a family <laughs> member uh, kill himself, can you say to other people who are looking sad and depressed or, you know, you feel like they're at risk, can you say, are you thinking about killing yourself? You can, and you should if you think they are. But I think the most healing things to say are things like, well, it wasn't, it, let's say the person's name was Robbie who died. Wasn't Robbie wonderful? I just loved Robbie so much. I loved his personality. You can talk about the person, you mm-hmm. know, it, it, without being, I mean, they want to talk about people. The survivor wants to talk about him, but they're afraid to because nobody else, you know, everybody else is so uncomfortable. So, yes, it's good to go up to the person and just say, I'm so sorry for your loss. I just loved him. He was such a neat kid. You know, that's just fine. And, and Beverly, I love that idea because the way somebody died is a moment in time. They are so much more to us than that moment in time. It's they were, had a lifetime of being a, a real-life person. Exactly. They had many successes and maybe some failures and maybe some funny mm-hmm. times you can talk about, and that's what the person needs to do. But But other people think, oh, gosh, I can't bring that up because that's what's making her so sad right now. And it's just um, um, it's just knowing that you can talk about it. And if you think the person is in trouble, they're more apt to tell you that, that they're thinking that they don't want to live anymore, if you're allowing them to talk about their son in the situation or the person who died. Now, how about romanticizing it a bit, though? I got a little bit concerned with the Academy Awards, with Keith Ledger getting the award. I thought it was great. But, you know, you can also romanticize uh, the, the younger people thinking, wow, look, he got his picture up there and people yeah. are all talking about it. And is that a concern? Well, it, it is a bit of a concern. Um, it's nice to know that they you know, that they gave him what he deserved. But you, there is a danger of romanticizing suicide, absolutely, by, you know, but, because they didn't bring up the thing that they should have brought up, I think. And that is, if you're going to romanticize somebody who's died by suicide, bring up the fact that, you know, he had some psychological problems and, you know, it doesn't hurt to say that, that he was depressed or I don't know what his situation was exactly. It may have just been a, a drug overdose. But yeah, I bl- yeah, that's right. It wasn't suicide. It was a drug overdose. Well, but, and they suicide. don't know. Yeah. And I think that the fear could be copycats. When people see that kind of attention, you know, they may feel like, wow, that's a lot of attention. I want that kind of attention. Yes, and that's, the, that's what copycat means, and that's why there are copycat suicides. But, mm-hmm. So it's like when the media talks about somebody who's died by suicide, it's really important to bring up the fact that he had been, you know, he had been on, on medication for, for depression or he was clinically depressed or we know that he had some mental health problems and so that people know that they didn't just, you know, that that they don't need to kill themselves. They're not having the mental illness or the or the you know, the sadness or or the psychological emotional turmoil that the other person had. Yeah, and it also builds awareness for those that are having it. Yes, and then you usually flash a, you flash a, a little sign up there that tells you a number to call if you're feeling, you know, that way. If you're right. feeling like like killing yourself or if you're feeling emotionally upset. Um Would so you, you Yeah. Would you talk a little bit about the fact that if people have tried suicide, that that's one of the biggest factors and one of the signs? It is. Um, and a lot of people, you know, men who attempt suicide often die the first time. Yeah. So, so we, don't, so we, we know that, that when people attempt suicide, that is a huge, a huge factor for reattempting and perhaps 
um, actually completing suicide and dying. But um, so it's really important if you know somebody who has attempted before and you see some signs that they're emotionally upset or they're acting differently, behaving differently than they usually do, that is um, a really good time to try to step in and intervene and talk, let the person talk and talk to them or report it to somebody who can be of, of more assistance than maybe you could. Can you talk about a little bit about the stigma of suicide? Well, that is what's keeping us, I truly believe that's what's keeping us from reducing suicides. You know, we haven't reduced suicides. There, there will be people who tell you we have, but we're still, there are still 30 or 35,000 suicides every year, and those are just the ones that we know about. Um, so, so, yes, it's, but I have totally forgotten the question you just asked. Uh, I was just saying the stigma of suicide. Oh, the stigma, yes. That is what's keeping us from... And, and, and how, do, you know, yeah, how do the families deal with it? How, for our families out there, what do you do with the stigma? Well, you know, th- that's one of the reasons that they don't get the support, as I was talking about before. Um, it's, it, it's such an old thing. The stigma comes from, you know, centuries ago when they wouldn't even bury people in a churchyard if they killed themselves. So it's just, and people don't understand the reasons for suicide. There, I recently spoke for the Marine Corps in North Carolina, and I asked this whole group of, of troops, you know, is there anybody in here who, who thinks that killing yourself means you're weak? And boy, one hand shot up just really fast. So I, I sort of got away from that topic. But well, well, and what's interesting about the military is that in January, um, 24 soldiers committed suicide, more soldiers than died more in combat. More soldiers than died in combat. That's mm-hmm. true. That's absolutely true. Yeah, so I've been working with the military because they have, you know, that's a, a sort of a different population. They feel like they have to be. But it really, it's co- sort of like the general population who kill themselves. They feel like they're not good enough or they feel like they're, they have to be good. The pressure is on them to be strong, to be um, smart, to be... Um, you know, to just be the best. Or, or that the world would be a whole lot better off without them, when in reality the world is a lot worse off without them. Well, people do feel like when they're in that psychological and emotional trauma state that they, that they aren't good enough, that they're mm-hmm. never going to be good enough, that, and they don't want people to know they feel that way. And that's, that's part of the stigma, is mm-hmm. they feel like they can't tell people because people will think they're weak or stupid or... Um, you know, and all did, those did, negative. Uh, we're going to have to close this segment now. I hate to uh, say that, but Beverly, do you have any comment that you'd like to make uh, regarding hope and healing? And I wanted you to know when we finish the entire show, we're going to be talking to Bob Gebbia that we are going to play uh, another Kurt Cobain song in his in his honor and memory. So okay. could, do you have any uh, last word you want to leave our audience with? Um, I just would like people to understand that suicide does not mean you're weak. That, mm-hmm. that suicide is about pain. It's about emotional pain. So if you know somebody who's having some emotional pain at this time, for Pete's sake, please go to them and offer them some kind of support. Well, thank you, Beverly Cobain, for being on our show today. It's been great.
listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com. 